Today on Let Me Be Frank, we'll hear from Bishop Caggiano about some of the very good reforms Pope Francis has put through, uh, including the new revisions to canon law and the excellent financial reforms the Holy Father has put through uh, previously. And then, in the second segment, we'll talk about the excellent St. Thomas More, whose feast day is later this month, and a little bit about the great movie about him, A Man for All Seasons. Don't turn that dial. We are on 1350 AM and on your phone if you're using the Veritas Catholic Network app. Make sure you download the app if you haven't already. You can listen live to our radio broadcast or grab podcasts of any of our original shows. To get the app, go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. We are bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York, so when you're tired of listening to noise on the radio, put on Veritas and be fed. All right, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, how are you, my friend? Doing well, Excellency. Doing very well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. How's your family? Oh, they're good. Thank- okay? Yeah, thank you for asking. My son came home from his freshman year at college. And, uh, and the verdict? The verdict, um, uh, I'm willing to pay for another year. lucky him (laughs) Uh, and then uh, yeah my my other two are are, I think they're very much looking forward to the summer and uh, so are we (laughs) we all are aren't we Yep, aren't we all are even if it's just to sit on your porch after the last 15 months it's like we have been held captive you could see the traffic on the merit is unbelievable it's like it's normal again Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, you know, the weekend, Memorial Day weekend, my niece and her children came up to Trumbo, so we spent part of the weekend together. It took three hours and 40 minutes from her house in Brooklyn to Trumbo, when ordinarily with no traffic, it's an hour and 25 minutes. Oh, my word. Imagine. Wow. Please. And to have kids in the car for that long. Oh, please. Traumatized. <laughs> they were traumatized. Anyway. Well, I went, I went and I got my hair cut this morning, and mm-hmm. uh, um, I didn't wear a mask. Nobody else was wearing a mask. Um, oh. Actually, actually, the woman who was cutting my hair was wearing a mask. So when I sat down, I asked her, I said, would it make you feel more comfortable if I put my mask on? And she said, are you vaccinated? I said, yes. She's like, eh, you're fine. So there you go. But it's, it's more like, it's more normal, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> yes. So now what's our topic today? The right. weather, sports, the stock market, <laughs> real estate prices. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> I, I would love to talk about sports, except the Knicks, uh, as of today's uh, recording, are, are down and they don't look like they're going to advance in the next no. round. So in- yeah, no. <laughs> Instead, no, let's talk about happy things. Let's talk about law and crime. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, the Holy Father um, is uh, has making news as um, his he office often will often do. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, this is this is really, I think, um, excellent. So he has now revised um, a section of the Code of Canon Law dealing with crimes and penalties. So mm-hmm. maybe you can kind of tell us what's happening, mm-hmm. um, how it changes things. You yep, know. yep, yep. Well, first thing, we should take a step back. Since the beginning of the year, actually since the fall of last year, there have been some remarkable 
developments coming out of Rome. For example, the new directory on catechesis, which is quite revolutionary in its model of looking at formation. A catechesis is not simply intellectual, but a formation of the whole person in a, a much more catechumenal model. So this idea of evangelizing catechesis has arisen, where catechesis is a four-stage process, right? Where a person encounters, learns, okay, is nurtured and then sent out in mission. Um, that was followed by the institution of the formal ministry of reader and acolyte for the laity. Mm-hmm which we are waiting for the guidance. Then that was followed by the institution of the ministry of catechist, which itself could be very revolutionary because it is, it is raising the ministry of catechesis to a formally recognized ministry, which will have a rigorous formation. And both men and women, lay religious and priests, will then have a significant role informing right, the minds and hearts of the generations to come. And then, what you just alluded to, which is book six of canon law, which is crimes and penalties. Uh, it's the penal process. And it is um, a significant reorganization, reordering, in addition to clarification of the previous book, which was part of the 1983 revision of canon law from the original code of 1917. Now, some of the background. All along the way, no, from 1983 to now is how many years? It's 40, it's a little less than 40 years, right? Things have happened and developed. Yes. John Paul, for example, issued decrees and instructions criminalizing certain behavior and making modifications to, to the law. Pope Benedict did as well. Pope Benedict was the one in 2009 who ordered this revision. So it was 12 years in the making. And Pope Francis not only um, gave his approval to it, but also asked that it be accelerated, given the abuse crisis and given the experience the church has had right, in applying the law and applying in a way that is both merciful but just. Right? So correction and punishment is an act of love. Right? Right. When it's understood that way, then it's also part of mercy. Mm-hmm. So it's not retribution, it's medicinal. Right? So, I mean, I've, I've read it, but I'm not a canonist. I met with Father Mollenhauer, and we talked about it, some of the highlights of what have changed. Um, there's a number of articles online now that I would ask people to take a look at. But there are some interesting points, right? Some revolutionary, actually. So, for example, at the very heart, that to render punishment for certain crimes is no longer a suggestion, it is an obligation now of the bishop to do. And that then creates uniformity and consistency in the church. That there are new crimes that have been added is also very important. Some of it with financial matters. Others, for example, in reporting abuse of a minor or a person who is an adult that is vulnerable. Um, That is now a crime 
it's mandated, but it's a crime under the law if you do not do it. So it, it, in many ways, it's caught up with a lot of the, the history we have had in the last 30 years. Right? In the end, there was this sense, at least Rome had this sense, that book six was like the nuclear option for a bishop. That is, you tried through fraternal correction, you tried through admonition, you tried from personal interaction, right? You tried from so many different ways to, ch to change a person, particularly when they were doing something that may be sinful, right? A bishop is still to do that, right? Because we're looking at the salvation of the soul of the individual. But now it's clear that book six, that is the penal process, is no longer just a last resort. It is a tool in the toolbox that should be used. So that person recognizes, and we're not talking about the abuse of minors necessarily, there's lots of things that can happen, right? right? Abuse yes. of power, misuse of authority, it could be a quid pro quo that you decide to do a favor to someone because you think the person's gonna give you a favor in return, all of those things, I mean, which in our secular world are almost par for the course, but here in, in book six, there are penalties for that, particularly in the part of a cleric. Yeah. Right. The other interesting thing here is some of this applies now to the laity. So, for example, if you're religious or you're a layperson with an office in a parish or you have some level of responsibility, if you are guilty of some of these things, you can be penalized in the law now, hmm. clearly, with removal from office or certain or even worse. So that's a broadening so that the book doesn't apply only to clerics, although it mostly applies to clerics, since most of the things listed would be behavior that unfortunately a cleric, that is a priest, a deacon, or a bishop would be guilty of. But nonetheless, there are other things that apply to more than just clerics. Um, the, the section that is the most, uh, is gonna draw the most attention, of course, is the section on the abuse of minors, mm -hmm. right? It's interesting that in the Vadi Mecum, which was issued last year, and that is the procedures by which a bishop is mandated to follow when there are accusations of sexual abuse of minors, all right? There was a term used in that, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves me correctly, of vulnerable adults. And it was left a bit ambiguous as to what ultimately a vulnerable adult is. Here in the code, I noticed that it is spoken of the person who is an adult who habitually has an imperfect use of reason. So what makes a person vulnerable in the law, in book six, is a person who may be an adult in chronological years, but mentally is still very much like a child. Yeah. and therefore can be used and abused as a child can. So now there is an interesting piece to this, and that is in, in the Vanimekum, which is not part of the Code of Canon Law, but it's the procedures, it spoke of a vulnerable adult as even temporarily, temporarily not in possession of his or her reason. The Code, this book says habitually in imperfect use. So I'm wondering whether there will be a revision of the, the Vadi Mekum in the months ahead, but we will see. But 
So the famous canon 1395 has become now the canon 1398. And it deals with abuse of minors and vulnerable adults, right? It speaks of indecent exposure. It speaks of even grooming. Mm -hmm. All of those offenses are now offenses against not so much chastity as they are, which they are, but they're against human dignity. Yes. So they're much more fundamental. They recognize the fundamental gravity that's involved in those crimes. Same with pornography. Okay. Now, pornography is a sin, obviously. It is a crime when it's child pornography, where the images are of children or, again, adults who have habitually imperfect use of their reason. So all of that um, kind of took what we had before, reorganized and clarified it, made it much more prescriptive. And in some cases, there's some canons where a single word was changed, and yet the word is revolutionary because the canon would have said that the offender, it, that they can punish, now it says you must punish, which is a sea change. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So in the next few months, we will dig deeper into some, because we need really canonists to dig into this deeper than I just gave to you. But this is my initial impression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it seems like by um, um, one of the definitions that you read, Excellency, that it would not only apply to victims who are, um, who have mental, um, you know, chronic mental issues, but... I don't know how to, uh, but also people who are suffering from depression and anxiety, maybe? Is that too, am I reading too much into it or? Um, My understanding of habitual lack of use of reason would be those individuals who are developmentally unable to use reason as an adult. Okay. Because depression and anxiety, they are not habitual. Right. They need not be habitual. Yeah. Right. Okay. So now that doesn't mean that they're not grave offenses. Of course they are. They're serious, certainly serious, and they need to be penalized, all right? And they need to, and and therefore they need to be addressed. But there is a, an essential difference between the two. Yeah. Because a, a child is so easily victimized. Right. A, a person without habitual use can so easily be victimized that the horror of a sin against them is that you are taking the trust that should be there to nurture them and you're using it for your own self-gain or your own self-grandizement or your own self-pleasure, which is just the, the idea is apparent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This whole thing feels like a, a very welcome and very strong move. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, it, it broadens it out. It it holds bishops more accountable and gives them more concrete guidelines as to how to uh, act and react. And it also, the broadening out to the laity, I think, seems like a really significant... Um, right. Right. So now a person may say, well, what, what, a person out there who may be a lay leader will say, what does this mean now? So if somebody, you know, makes an accusation, I'm going to go to a trial in the, in the Vatican? <laughs> no, the answer is no. It, it, the procedure is done in the diocese. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, in the law, you can be deprived of office. 
which means you can be banned from what you were doing before. Okay, no one's going to extract um, a monetary or physical penalty, but you will be banned from office, and it could be for, per for permanently for life, yeah. right? Yeah. And for a cleric, you could be deprived of office. You could also be dismissed from the clerical state, which means if I were in active ministry as a pastor, I could be I could lose my office as pastor, and I could also be literally laicized, so I can no longer function publicly in any way. Um, as a priest, even right. though you are sacramentally ordained a priest forever. So those priests in administrative leave who have judgments rendered against them, oftentimes, most times in fact, are laicized, so they are deprived of office, they can't function in ministry, and they are laicized, right? Dismissed from the clerical state. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask, Excellency, mm -hmm. so is, is your, and again, I, I you know, this is early on, uh, as of our taping today, it's early on in, in the release of this. Mm -hmm. So, but, so is it your impression that um, this will also help address uh, some of the scandalous things that happened in seminaries and with, you know, former Cardinal McCarrick? Will it help address oh, well, those things? Well, I think it makes clear that um, all of those, all of that behavior um, needs to be dealt with uh, for what it is, mm -hmm. which is a crime. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there is no more ability to say, well, that was a sin, and therefore we deal with it solely in a spiritual way. That is through confession. No. Right. You do need to do that, obviously, because again, it's the salvation of the sinner, but th it's a crime. And remember, why does the law exist? Why would you penalize someone in the first place? Okay, well, because you're seeking three things. First, you are seeking justice, because a person has been wronged, and it is a mandate of charity and a gospel mandate to seek justice. Number two, you want to amend the offender, so you penalize or punish so that a person may recognize the gravity of what they did and have a change of mind and heart. And the third is, to repair the scandal that your actions may have created. And that of the three is the hardest because we live in a very cynical time and it's very hard to undo the effects of scandal. Right? So yes, it will, but it also addresses other things. You know, we've heard a lot about the financial shenanigans that have gone on, right? Now they're crimes. Yeah. So even in our diocese, we've had some major financial defalcations, right, by pastors. Um, mm -hmm. In prior 20, 30 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it was. They're now specifically crimes in the law. And they can be both deprived of office by mandate of the law. So it's not that the bishop goes and says, I think you should resign. If you're guilty of the crime, you are deprived of the office. That's yeah. the penalty rendered in the law or dismissed from the clerical state, which is the next level of punishment. So in some sense, some of the discretion that may have been used well and may have not been used well in the past by bishops, much, it's much more prescribed now, which I, I personally welcome. Yes. Yeah. Right? The, the, the financial reforms 
they are not only at the diocesan level, but they go all the way deep into the Vatican, right? Correct. Because the Vatican Correct. needed badly. Correct. Correct. See, part of the difficulty um, with financial mismanagement and financial crimes is to get the facts. And, you know, working very closely with Mike Hanlon, who's the CFO of our diocese, who is a wonderful man, as honest as you could imagine, hardworking, very focused, very deliberate, very prudent. Right? It has taken him a long time to fully become comfortable with everything financial that we have. So he has taken the time to verify all the facts. And that takes years to really get to that point. Sure. Right? It's, and it's not to say you don't trust what came before, but simply you are responsible and therefore you need to take the time to verify what is really out there. What are these numbers? Are these numbers the true numbers? And do, do they hold up to independent scrutiny, including audits and outside auditors? So it, in some sense for the Vatican, could you imagine how complex a job that is? Right, yeah. When you have accounts that could be hundreds of years old, in all different names, shapes, and sizes, some in the Vatican, some abroad, some overseas, right? So you come as the Pope, and you expect to get the clean balance sheet, and it's a little more complex than that. And I think Pope Francis, to his credit, yes. knew that from the beginning with Cardinal Pell, asked mm -hmm. him to do it, and because Cardinal Pell, for whatever reason, was not able to complete it, now he's acting very quickly yeah. to finalize that process as well. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, this feels like it should, it's all such welcome news. Absolutely. Oh. The other thing that's interesting is there's a whole slew of crimes, too, that have been added. Right? For example, if a, if a bishop ordains a woman, it is considered a crime because it is, it contradicts papal and magisterial teaching, okay? If you record a conversation in the sacrament of confession, it's a crime, okay? And it, it could have penalties up to excommunication. Right? And that I think would be true, although I'm not certain, but I'm speculating, it would be true for both the priest celebrant as well as the penitent. Right, yeah. Even though it's your confession does not give you the right to record it. <laughs> yeah. In the law, right? These are part um, of book six, Excellency? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. And these are some of the things that John Paul, by decree, criminalized. But now it's all in one place in the book. Yeah. Right? There's even a, an interesting provision. Okay. I'm going to read it because I find it fascinating. It's the new code, uh, Canon 1388. It says, and I quote, a person who comes forward for sacred orders bound by some censure or irregularity which he voluntarily conceals is ipso facto suspended from the order received. And you may say, what does that mean? So let's say, for example, a man was in a seminary and had a terrible time. And he did something that created an irregularity, right? Or a censure. Or there's something irregular about him that he knows about 
that could be an impediment. But he says nothing. Goes to another seminary or stays in the same seminary and gets ordained because the irregularity regarding his own life, he says nothing about, or the censure was in one place and he runs to another place who accepts him to get ordained. The law now says you are ipso facto, immediately suspended from the order, period. Right? So does that mean that the holy orders are not valid or that... Um, you are suspended. Okay. Not that your ordination is rendered invalid. You are suspended from okay. priestly ministry. Okay. And it doesn't, and again, I've only looked at this briefly, but I wonder, in fact, I have the code right here. I wonder if there's provision to be able to be admitted back or not. There may not be. Right? Yeah. See, I, a part of me would have loved to have been a kennel lawyer because I love, I love like detail and I love process and all the rest of it. Yes. But, but God said no. We have to do something else. Yeah. So I'd be curious. Yeah. Those are the sort of things. There's going to be a lot written on this. Yeah. And I think I'm sure. most of it, if not all of it, will be positive. Which is why, and, and because of all the details and, th- and, and analysis and, and concrete uh, means of implementation need to be worked out, that's, that's probably why they're not implementing it until. Um, for another oh six my gosh. months. Oh my goodness, right. absolutely. And plus, plus you have to give bishops, I presume we'll have workshops at the USCCB meeting in November. We have yeah. to be able to know what we're bound to do. Right. right. And something as important as this, you, you would need at least six months to make sure it's done correctly. You know, one thing that I, that I read, I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but that I thought was very interesting and important was that... Um, the uh, the new changes also will provide improvements in the due process rights for priests because yes. nobody yes. should be assumed guilty until yes you know yes I will find it for you it is I I highlighted okay Canon thirteen twenty one okay it says any person notice person not cleric mm-hmm. any person is considered innocent until the contrary is proven. Now, I think that was always the presumption in the law, but now it's clearly stated in the law. Right. right. That, that doesn't preclude you, you or, or any bishop from prudently taking steps to make sure you know, that they and others are safe in the meantime while the investigation... Well, yeah. yeah. Like, so, for example, let us say that an accusation is made against a priest of a possible act of abuse. The immediate response is that that person steps away from ministry during the period in which the accusation can be dutifully investigated. When that was introduced in the church, right, it was came with a tremendous negative connotation that somehow, if you are asked to step aside, you are really guilty. And there were not too many priests who were reinstated after that. And the ones that were, were always looked askance. And a lot of people said, well, the suspicion whether or not right. he may still be guilty. Right. In most professions, teachers, lawyers, doctors, nurses, all the rest, if there's an accusation, there's a professional process in place. And a person steps out of active duty mm-hmm. while it's being investigated. So the same is true for us. 
you go on administrative leave until the initial investigation is completed and then whether or not there's an establishment that it is in fact seemingly credible that the accusation seems credible notice it's not that the person is guilty and then begins the process that we're the penal process yeah to establish whether there's true guilt or not so so let's say for example a priest is accused and then it's found that the accusation is not credible he's reinstated in ministry i think people are much more now willing to say okay this doesn't mean that the man is secretly guilty, is that there was an independent review and he's welcome back. I mean, the initial response has mitigated over these 20 years. Yes. And, and because of the strength of the rules now, everyone can say, well, we know because there must have been a thorough investigation. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's, that's right. very good. Excellency, we ran a little long, but it was important um, to go through this stuff. Uh, we're oh, going to yeah, take a absolutely. break. When we come back, Excellency, we'll talk about one of the models for lawyers. We're talking about law, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we'll talk about St. Mm-hmm. Thomas More. So mm-hmm. you're listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we will be right back. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, we're talking with uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano. We talked about some of the uh, laws and rules that have been changed by um, His Holiness uh, and now we'll kind of shift, staying on the legal um, mm-hmm. topic, but there's a great feast day coming up, Excellency, of a man mm-hmm. who was really, he was, I mean, at the time he was at the upper levels of worldly power and mm-hmm. managed to remain heroically um, steadfast and faithful to the mm-hmm. Lord, really. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of course, it's St. Thomas More. Mm-hmm. Who is the patron saint of statesmen and politicians. Um, That was declared by uh, Pope John Paul II in I think the year 2000 or 2001. Um, Just a personal story, when I first went to England, I was with my mom and my sister and we went to the Tower of London. And of course in the Tower of London is where the crown jewels are, right? And when we came out, and of course I'm a little claustrophobic, but that was just an experience unto itself, but coming out into that little landing, like the, uh, the terrace that they have, then it dawned on me that it was in the Tower of London where Thomas More was beheaded. So we were walking on dirt that was some way, shape or form, moistened by the blood of the Catholic mourners. Yeah. It was quite an astonishing thing to consider, right? Um, so what's, what can we say about Thomas More? What is his famous line? You remember, no? Yep, I'm the king's good servant, but God's first. Yeah, I died the king's good servant, but God first. 
And that really is emblematic of Thomas More's life. You know, he was born into a family that um, had political connections. Um, his dad, I believe, was a member of parliament. Um, Thomas wanted to um, pursue education as best he could. His father agreed. So he was classically trained, right? So he was fluent in Latin and in Greek. Um, he discerned a vocation, a monastic vocation for a little bit of time, but his father insisted that he go into the legal profession since he himself was a lawyer. That's typical of fathers, right? <laughs> no comment. So, right. <laughs> so he... Uh, so he did, and that began to open the path to the political career that you spoke about, becoming the Lord High Chancellor of all England under King Henry VIII. It's interesting, researching some of Thomas More's life in anticipation of what we were going to talk about today, I didn't realize he was as avant-garde as he was. Right? I didn't realize, for example, that Thomas More was married twice. Right? And he married very quickly the second time in a time when people with scandal and uh, being askance to all of that. I think it was, it was less than a month. Mm -hmm. That would have been horrifying to the norms of his time, but he did it. Right. And I think in part, he did it because he had young children. I believe he had four yes. that had to be cared for. Um, in a time when marriage was as much uh, a relationship that was unitive as it was procreative, in the sense that children needed to be cared for, right? The other is that he had his own children. He had children from his second wife, right? And um, he very much favored his daughter Margaret, above others, to get the same excellent education he did in a time when women were not afforded that opportunity. Thomas More gave his daughter that opportunity. Yeah. And there's a, a story that her training was so good, her Latin was so good that impressed bishops, particularly one bishop, who sent her a gold coin in recognition of her achievements. So, you know, we think about him, he really was kind of ahead of his time in many ways. Right? Yeah, yeah. And do you remember, and, and the reason, it's funny, my first introduction to Thomas More was the movie, A Man for All Seasons. Ah, great movie. I love that movie. And I forget who, I was trying to think, who played Thomas More? I forget. Uh, I, mean, I meant to look it up, but I didn't have time to look it up. I mean, I've seen the movie so many times, but I haven't seen it recently. And, and his wife, of course, not knowing it was the second wife, said, pleading with him, right? When eventually he's imprisoned and how he was stubborn. But of course, because for Thomas More, it was, I die God's servant first. Mm -hmm. So his mind was like an excellent lawyer's mind. It's keen, it's discerning, it's deliberative, it's anticipatory, it seeks clarity. It looks at the larger picture of life. It sees how one piece affects not just the pieces next to it, but all the pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. So the Protestant Reformation, 
even before Henry got it in his idea that he thought he was going to be the head of the church. When Luther arose, it was absolutely abhorrent to Thomas More. Apoplectic it made him. Yeah. And some of his writings are quite colorful. I could never say it on our podcast. <laughs> and you could still be a saint. Isn't that, that gives me hope, right? It gives me a lot of hope. Great deal of hope. Very, particularly when he wrote to Luther. Ooh! Oh, he, he didn't quite, he left nothing to the imagination. Yeah. Again, because um, in his mind, not only are you usurping divine law, because remember, as a lawyer, it wasn't just natural law, it wasn't man-made law, but there's also divine law in his mind. And the other two, natural law will always be inconsonant, and man-made law could never possibly abrogate divine law. So the notion that a king, because there's a divine right, supposedly, of, of royalty, could then make himself the head of the church is directly opposed to divine law and revelation. So for Thomas More, it was inconceivable, completely mm -hmm. inconceivable. It could be kings, it could be a cartload of kings, it could be a continent filled with kings. It was irrelevant to him. No one can legislate what God does not allow. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, even with the man-made laws, I, there was uh, a scene where in the movie where uh, his daughter, Meg, tells him to arrest Richard Rich. He says, why? Because he's a bad guy. And he said, but that's not against the law. And then her fiancé says, um, he says something like, I would uh, run down all the laws to pursue the devil. And Thomas said, you would do that? And then when it's, you're all alone, it's just you and the devil, and he turns to face you, and there are no laws left. What is mm -hmm. there to protect you? Right, exactly. But that, Exactly. Exactly, right. We've spoken about the law before, right? Mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon versus the Roman, but that's the bottom line. It's mm -hmm. your defense. The law is the defense of justice. It's the defense of rights. It's the defense of order. So, so the Protestant Reformation in Thomas More's mind was not only an offense against divine law, but it actually was a threat to society. It was a threat to the order of society that's created in a certain way in the mind of God. Now, one could argue that his premonition has come to pass. Since in our contemporary society, we are now having laws passed that are rewriting essential elements of what we believe to be the truth and revealed through the Lord that are totally in contradiction to what the Lord taught. And we do it because we think we are the masters but we're not. And the faster we wake up and realize that, the better off we all will be. Yeah. But they didn't do it in the 16th century, and they're not doing it in the 21st century either, for that matter. One of the critiques of Thomas More is his treating of heretics. Heretics, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. That is, reformers. And, you know, whether or not he was involved with imprisoning them, torturing them, having them be burned to the stake which was the punishment, actually, being a heretic. In fact, if you were um, a layman, I, yeah, I think it's if you were a layman and you were convicted of heresy, 
you were drawn and quartered. It's horrible. Oh my gosh. To be cut open alive? Yeah. Oh, oh my, I can't even imagine it. Uh, in fact, that was his sentence, if I'm not mistaken. And Henry VIII commuted it to being beheaded so that it, it wouldn't be as painful because remember, they were close friends. Yes, right. So let's, go, so let's go back to the political life. He rose in all these different titles that he had and eventually became the Lord High Chancellor. And in effect, that meant he was chief of staff. He basically ran the kingdom for Henry yeah. VIII. Yeah. Right? And in the movie, both in the stuff I've learned, but in the movie, the gradual turning of Henry against Thomas More was not a battle of wills between Henry VIII and Thomas More. It was the battle of wills between Henry VIII and God in the end. Mm -hmm. At least God as Thomas More understood God to have been revealed. It was his fight against what was divinely prescribed that Thomas More believed with all his heart. So, you know, but bright, because he knew, he knew that he would be held accountable for what he said. Yes. So he chose to say nothing, right? Very ingenious. Yes. And he chose to say nothing because the presumption was silence implies consent. Right. So if I'm not actively opposing, you know, the act of succession or the oath of succession or the treasons act or whatever else it may be, whatever they, then I am tacitly, silently approving it, even though in fact he did not. Right. And because he's so smart and adept, he was able to, now you mentioned, uh, what is it, uh, Richie Rich? Yes. And he gave false testimony against Thomas More, wasn't it in his trial or one of his trials? Right, one of yep. His, mm -hmm. right? And uh, because he said that Thomas More had revealed his inner thinking to him. Well, honestly, honestly, when you're asked by the king, you're asked by all these, you're, you're gonna say to him? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, basically exactly. that's what he said. You, you've got to be, you gotta give me more credit than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But, but I don't think they did because they were just, the, the word on high was silence for him was not consent. Yeah. Silence was just silent opposition. Yeah. And when judgment was passed, Thomas More did in fact say exactly what he believed. Right. Right. That there is no temporal man can be head of the church, right? But only the successor of Peter chosen by God himself. Yeah, yeah. He made a, he, he made a point, uh, at least in the movie, to say um, also along the lines of what you were saying before, Excellency, is that when statesmen forsake their own private conscience for the sake of their public duties, then they are taking their country to chaos. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And you wonder to yourself once again, in the modern times, not that I want to be 
you know, too judgmental, but how many statesmen do we have who actually followed an informed, disciplined, apolitical conscience? Mm-hmm. There are some that are informed. There are some that are principled. But I have yet to encounter a politician who does it apolitically. That is, regardless of whether there is the King of England or the President of the United States or the King of Siam or anybody else for that matter, because I am informed and by conscience I believe this to be true, this is what I hold. Now, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are politicians like that. But the point is, every politician should be like that. Every statesman should be like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is, for me, the, uh, the modern-day parallel is, well, I'm personally against, but I can't, you know, publicly, whatever, whatever. We, I mean, so one of, one of my favorite scenes, Excellency, is when... Um, Thomas is being questioned by that little tribunal. It's his friend, the Duke yes. of Norfolk, yes. Oliver Cromwell, and then the, I think he's a bishop. But, and his friend, his old friend, the Duke of Norfolk, is begging him, Thomas, just sign, just sign this thing, recognizing the divorce. And he said, sign it for the sake of fellowship. And Thomas says, okay, and then when we die and you go to heaven for following your conscience, and I go to hell because I did not follow mine. Will you come with me for fellowship? Right, right. Remember, because there's two issues in Thomas More's life. The first is the annulment, okay, of Henry's marriage to Catherine, to marry Anne Boleyn. He wanted a divorce. And the second was Henry's secession to be the head of the church. So right. there's two issues involved, right? And while in the end, if the king married his second wife and therefore is in a state of sin, that is a personal state of sin. But to take on, to, succeed, to secede, to take over the role of the pope, is, it would be then have been an act against the whole structure of the ecclesial church and it would have been the earthquake in the structure of society that Thomas More could not in any way shape or form accept yeah because in the end the divorce if you if you're a, a, a bigamist well that's your per- when you stand before God that's your sin and even if there's a right of succession in royalty with her, with his with his wife nonetheless but that's different from, because that's all within the temporal realm. So now, but this is crossing into the divine realm. That's where yeah. he could not abide at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I, th- I think he even um, said that he recognized that, uh, that Anne was the new queen. Yes. Um, and, yes. Yes. You know, you, you think about him, John Fisher, and the English martyrs, um, mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. It feels like in every time in history when there was deep trouble and persecution, that it's in those times that God raises up great saints. And always, yeah, always. I I think, and and I'm fairly certain 
you feel this way too, Excellency, is that right now we're in one of those times and that God is raising up great saints in places where, like, you know, in Africa where there are martyrs being made in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And even here in the States, I think, where there's um, like a a, a subtler or um, maybe, maybe because it's subtler, maybe in some ways more diabolical persecution. Um, So then Mm -hmm. I look around and I say, okay, so who are going to be the great saints that he raises uh, up now. Uh, uh, but I think it's extraordinarily important that our listeners, you and I, discern how to properly respond to such persecution. For if it is animated by a spirit of division and anger and rancor, it is not the martyrdom you are talking about. Someone else has control of that agenda. That's what deeply worries me. Yeah. I think there's a lot more personal, quiet martyrdom and suffering going on in the church than those who have the megaphones, whether it's on social media or in other places, who purport to be defending the church, right? And going out to attack that which attacks the church. But they do it with such a spirit that is divisive and rancorous that I wondered to myself, who in the end is animating? What in the end is animating that attack? Because yeah. everything is not what it seems to be. Rule number one in the Kejano universe. That which you see most often is not what it appears to be. Mm. And you need to discern with the Holy Spirit's grace what it is you are actually seeing. Thomas More could do that. Yeah, yeah. He and John Fisher, they did it all with humility and in, a, in, in right relationship with others. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That's why humility, as we said last year when we had our little episode on prayer, starts the, in the, in the catechism, starts a section on prayer. It's, it speaks about humility. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, We'll be back on the other side of this break with a listener question. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology, I myself, as a priest, am always learning. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, so here's the, the email that came in, Excellency. It says, Excellency, I have a problem with the atrocities the church committed in the past, like the Inquisition and the Crusades. How do I reconcile this with the faith I am certain Jesus gave us? Well, it's an excellent question and a question that many people have struggled with for, for a very long time. You could add to that list the sexual abuse of minors in our contemporary age. Right? It is clear that there have been periods where members of the church, even members of the hierarchy of the church, have sanctioned actions which were contrary to the gospel, contrary to the faith. It goes to the mystery of the church being both the divine and human reality. And therefore the human reality can be sinful, can be profoundly simple, 
whether that is individually or corporately, in the sense that a group in the church can be guilty of some grave sin. In the ideal, we witness to the truth so that we make the truth credible in the world, persuasive in the world. But when we do not witness to the truth, it doesn't lessen the truth. It lessens us for being unfaithful witnesses. So how do you reconcile the two? You put all of that against the heroic, towering acts of fidelity and love that the members of the same church offered at the same time. And you see the complexity of a human community that also has a divine animating presence, which is the Holy Spirit. So I would suggest that we once, one, recognize transparently and honestly what in fact happened, these moments of darkness. Number two, that we seek forgiveness and reparation for what was done to the extent that that is possible. Number three, ensure that such action never happens again within the community of the church. But number four, do not allow the father of evil to discourage us or dissuade us from the truth because the truth is greater than the individuals in our church since the truth is the Lord Jesus in our presence in and through the whole church, not just the parts of the church or the people in the church who have done some harm or in some cases grave harm. Yes. So I guess the answer is how do you reconcile? You're not supposed to because those things should never have happened. <laughs> yeah. Right? But we move forward. All right. And if you have a question for Bishop Frank, uh, please send it in to us. You can post it on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? I would be happy to. Well, I enjoyed our conversation today, by the way. It was yeah, good. It was excellent. No, yeah, I, I like this sort of thing. We have to do more of this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, almighty God the gift of your life, of your grace, of your Son, with whom you sent the Holy Spirit into our midst. Help us to be docile to the Spirit's inspirations. Help us to act and think in his mind and heart, so that as we approach the many challenges we face, we may do them, we do so faithfully and courageously. And may the laws which we follow always be just, reflect your holiness, and help us to live in peace. Bless us, O Lord, this day and all the days of our life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I look forward to our conversation next week. Thanks, Excellency. All the best, Steve.